0: Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. On a sunny August morning, I stand in a gallery in the Tower Museum in Derry. Outside, the city walls are thronged with promenading visitors, exploring history and culture and politics and the weave of time. And I have come inside into the museum in the expectation of more or less doing the same thing. But now I see a blue and white bowl, a delicate Ming porcelain bowl, gleaming on a glass shelf. And suddenly, to my surprise, here I am falling, spinning through time and space. The museum offers a permanent exhibition on the Spanish Armada, and specifically on the story of La Trinidad Valentera. The great Armada galleon, which in September 1588 foundered in the bay at Kinigo, on the northeast shoulder of Inishon. I have visited this Armada exhibition many times. The story of the ship is in itself absorbing. Its beginnings as a Venetian galleon, its new identity as a powerful symbol of Spanish naval might, and its sailing in the Armada in that summer of 1588 the Armada's defeat by the English and its punishing search for a route home as a summer failed, and the eventual fate of La Trinidad Valantera, its death, really, on a rocky Irish shore. All of this constitutes a powerful arresting history, even before the next chapter in this narrative opens. The discovery of the wreck site by divers from Derry in 1971 and the careful salvage of guns and tools and cannon and weaponry, and a blue and white Ming bowl from the seabed. All this, but also a personal connection, that tangible thread between then and now, between them and us, that sense that we can all feel when we've been in a place that is charged and electrified by history. In my mind's eye, I see the beach at Kinnegoo The sand seems more white here than elsewhere, the luxuriant slopes which shelter the beach more green, the water more blue and more cold. The hills enclose the strand, the rest of Ireland vanishes as though you were on a desert island. It involves no great leap of the imagination to see a stormy September evening and the great ship listing, groaning, sinking into the sea. My guess is that anyone who has walked the sand at Kinnego will feel that pull, that tug of history, will seem to glimpse that bridge into the distant past. In previous visits, I've gazed at the museum's literal big guns, at the vast cannon which seemed to guard this exhibition. But today, my eye has fallen on this more modest artefact, onto this unexpected Ming porcelain bowl one of many such objects that stud the display cases. And I see, as though suddenly, that these small pieces hold all the potency and power of a cannon. They hold more, in fact, because they are more human. They speak to us in ways that guns and weaponry never will. Objects come tumbling down to us through the years. They too spin through history and into our hands, and they arrive with their power and authority intact. They kindle our imaginations. On this warm morning, I speculate about this bowl. I imagine the hands that crafted it in China long ago, and its journey across Asia to Venice, maybe, and on to Spain, delicate, translucent, still intact. I imagine the hands of the person who brought it aboard the ship As a symbol of prestige, of luxury, of social class, this bowl signalled status, position. I imagine the bowl weathering the voyage north to England, and then north again after defeat at sea, and then at last south and west into Irish waters, and I imagine it not tumbling, but slipping, gently, onto a bed of sediment and sand on the ocean floor, a little offshore from the beach at Kinnego. And there it lies, tarnishing, slowly encrusting, its history seemingly at an end. And then, four hundred years later, something unexpected happens in history. A membrane in time ruptures and a diver's hand reaches through and clutches and brings this bowl to the surface, perhaps in a handful of sand and shells. And still it is intact. And now it sits in a glass case in a dairy museum and speaks to all comers of an epic journey taken across time and space. We can think of the past as dead and gone, but the opposite is the case. The past is with us today. It holds our hands and it tells us all about connectedness. It tells us so much that we need to know. (laughs)
1: Up your hand, any young lad whose father isn't working, Brother Cahill announced to the class. It was the first week of sixth class, and he was trying to find out how many sets of free books were needed. Even in 1975, this was a humiliating exercise. Those brave enough to raise their hands in front of everyone endured the stares and skits of the class. The usual suspects raised their arms, amongst them Boxer Flynn, who had been kept back a year tough lad from Gary Moore or the holla as we used to call it as it had a dip at the top of the hill Chicken Crotty raises his we all knew his father was on the dole, he was putting up his hands since first class a lot of the holla lads put up their hands Paddy Scott, Lenny Burke and the Git Tobin I sat beside my best friend, Hog and we looked around at the seven or eight lads with their heads bowed and their hands raised Brother Cal took his notes. It was the same lads every year. However, this year, there was one new addition. I hoped Hog kept looking at the Holla lads. I felt my stomach churning like a twin tub washing machine. For the first time in my life, I could smell sweat from under my own arm. An arm I was about to raise. Hog and myself lived at the end of the Hayward Road. Not too far from the Holla, but enough to make us think we were better than them. Huh, tuppence halfpenny looking down on tuppence, my mother used to say to us, taking us down a peg. I don't know where you get the notions. My father was a cobbler who worked for his brother Jimmy, but the work was inconsistent and he was regularly on the dole. On this particular morning, my mother, probably tired of the front we tried to keep up, announced at home, when the teacher asks who needs free books, ye have to put up your hands. My older brothers and sister had moved on to secondary school so they would not be affected and my younger sister was probably too young to understand the humiliation. But for me, I felt it was the end of my world. What was I going to tell Hogg? He knew my father worked with Uncle Jimmy every day. I even exaggerated my father's status at work to Hogg telling him he and Jimmy were partners. I hardly slept that night thinking of how the next day would go even if nobody else noticed me putting up my hand. Hogwood. I tried to prepare for the humiliation. I waited for his distinctive knock. Number 46 had a metal knocker, and over the years we grew to know the different signature knocks. Davy Smith, our rent man, who seemed worn down from years of disappointment, had a kind of an annoyed knock. Three firm taps. Tat, tat, tat. But Hog. Hog's knock was full of confidence. He'd catch the knocker and do a rhythmic four beats, one slow, three fast. Tat, tat, tat. tat. Used to drive my father insane. There's Hogan breaking down the door again. So when the dreaded tat, 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 tat came on that fateful morning, my knees buckled. On the walk to school I tried to play out in my head how the awful event would go. What if I didn't put up my hand? Would Mammy kill me? My only hope was that Brother Carl would forget about the books, postponing the misery for another time. I had, however, no such luck. So Brother Carl asked whose fathers aren't working. Hogg and the rest of the class were gawking at the poor souls raising their hands. I too began to lift mine. If I had been standing there naked, I couldn't have been more mortified. My hand felt like I was hoisting a bucket of lead as I raised my arm. Stop, Hogg said. What are you doing? I kept my hand up, but I couldn't look at him. I just stared straight ahead. Hogg grabbed my arm as if to save me from Brother Carl's bamboo cane. You'll get into trouble, he said. Finally I made eye contact with him and mumbled. My father's not working. What are you on about, he said. He's not working at the moment, I added, as if that made all the difference. I knew he just wouldn't understand. His eyes went through me like he didn't know who I was anymore. I feared it would be the end of our great friendship. The walks home from school by the river trying to spot trout playing conkers along the road home and playing soccer outside his house all would be gone now. My uncle can't get any leather at the moment I told him in desperation. Tis scarce more lies more lies so he won't have any work for a few weeks. I waited for what seemed like a lifetime for his reaction. Uh okay, he says. And that was it. He never mentioned it again. After school, Hogg said, we should go by the river to see if we can see any fish. Then we found two rounded stones and played conkers all the way home.
2: It was a sweltering summer in New York. I was there for a year doing of all things a Foss course marketing Irish blended tea. My housemate, Sarah was working with plastic injection mouldings. Well, somebody has to. We sublet a corner brownstone tenement apartment from Sylvia the Dancer in the East Village. Now don't tell them in Foss but we were having a ball. This was 1988. Ed Koch was mayor the gays were still banned from the Patrick's Day parade. Nightclubs opened all night, and AIDS was a killer. These village walls were adorned with stencils of "Silence equals death" and "Die up scum. In early January, we had slid precariously around the city's giant, grey, frozen sidewalk slushbergs, but this was a strange memory. Come the summer heat wave, 99 degrees, said the man on the TV, as the mercury rose, we melted. Outside our downtown tenement red brick on 7th Street and Avenue B, the guy who sold old life magazines was selling an electric fan. Air conditioning was something we only enjoyed in our lawyer friend's apartments, so this fan was a lifeline. While giving some illusory, swirly relief, it actually sent the heat billowing around like a small indoor jet engine, blasting the fur of the sleepy cat Daphne, who never, ever went outdoors not even onto the airy fire escape. Up on the roof with a beer in the evening, we took in the shimmering views of the nearby Twin Towers and the distant, glittering, sexy Chrysler Building. But the asphalt underfoot was sticky and pungent, so it wasn't a daytime sunbathing option. Out on the streets, the local entrepreneurs suspended their selling of loose joints to helpfully release the valves on fire hydrants sending plumes of water high up between the red brick blocks, liquid curtains for dancing kids in Lycra, while the fire department despaired at the water shortage. So when we heard that there was a local public outdoor swimming pool, the brilliantly named Hamilton Fish Pool, only a few blocks away, this was important news. Down Avenue C, onto 3rd Street and across Houston, I went to investigate, past the reputed crack houses the 24-hour bodegas and the Puerto Rican ice drink vendors. And there it was, the Hamilton Fish Pool on the corner of Stanton and Pitt Street, the distinctive 50 by 50 metre perfectly square outdoor swimming pool in the middle of the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Dating from 1936, it was one of 11 outdoor swimming facilities provided by the City of New York for the people as a response to the Great Depression there were ancient red brick changing rooms and a smaller half-moon paddling pool. It became a ritual. We worked from our hot home or the library, yes, remotely, and when we could, we ran down for a quick dip. We got in through a large jagged hole in the wire fence and swam. No towel needed in the heat, just swimming through throngs of kids, the beatboxes pumping out 1988 hip-hop, the sound of Spanish and the waft of grass in the air. A summer party in our tiny, sweaty Avenue B apartment had only one outcome. It was, as they say, hotter than July, so a a 4am swim was needed. We ran down through the humid streets. Our out-of-town visitors climbed over the wire while we strolled through our jagged doorway and in we all jumped. The great East Village breaststroke race took off in full splashy flow in the darkness. I was so busy swimming for glory I didn't notice the spinning lights reflecting on the wall ahead. There is something distinctly familiar about the sound of a New York police siren. A high-pitched whoop accompanied by a grainy bass tone. We scrambled out squelching and scarpered through the fence, glancing back at that casual yet daunting silhouetted gait of two cops approaching from the disco-lit patrol car. Visions of our visas with a revoked stamp flashed before our eyes. Luckily, it was a case of New York's finest being way too hot and not bothered enough to pursue us. My grainy attempts at art photos from that time include one black and white picture I took as a humid evening drew in of a small boy standing in his shorts on the diagonal corner of the pool, completely alone, staring transfixed at the empty, still grey water rippling ahead of him. Later that same summer, a riot and baton charge took place right outside our windows, prompted, the TV man said, by the heat. Temperatures eventually cooled that autumn, the pool's gates were locked and we returned to dole queues in Ireland with our visas intact. The Hamilton Fish Pool is still going strong, a New York City heritage landmark. It's in use to this day by the Lower East Side locals thanks to a million-dollar refurbishment by the Parks Department. Sunscreen and swimming lessons are free to all.
3: It was Thursday evening, August 23rd, 1962. I was seven years old. There was still a week of the long, glorious school holidays left to enjoy. Those were the halcyon days when it was unthinkable for schools to open before September the 1st and deprive us of that last, cherished week of the holidays. My friends and I were playing football at the local football field around five o'clock, when we noticed a bit of commotion. An aeroplane was circling our town, Dunmore, flying at an unusually low altitude. Steadily, a curious crowd began to assemble, animatedly discussing and analysing the situation. The plane continued to fly low, making what seemed to us very loud noises. We children, who'd never been remotely close to an aircraft of any kind, were beside ourselves with excitement. The politics of our football game, usually so competitive, fell away as we were transfixed by this new wonder. Our excitement continued as the plane headed east over the Dublin Road. A large cohort of young and old instinctively began to run up that road as the plane flew lower and lower. At this stage... The aircraft, a silver-coloured bomber, was now clearly visible to us as we focused on the silhouettes of three figures within. Suddenly, the plane veered left into a field, came to ground hard with a thudding sound and skidded along for 50 yards before coming to rest on a slight incline in the field. By now, our frenzied crowd had grown, And I recall men of authority from our community, including the guard, the sergeant, the doctor and the postmaster, putting some order on the situation. They organised the safe exit from the plane of the crew. The pilot, who we would later learn, was Colonel Francisco Escobar of Ecuador, his flight engineer Raymond Herman and his navigator Jose Carrera. The plane was a twin-engine Canberra jet bomber of the Ecuadorian Air Force and these men had flown it from Quito, capital of Ecuador, and were taking it to the English Electric Company's base at Wharton in Lancashire for servicing. We would also later discover that a faulty compass had been the cause of the crash landing. The exotic sounds of Spanish being exchanged between the crew, who were thankfully unharmed, heightened the sense of intrigue we experienced that balmy August evening so many years ago. And our journey of wonder was to continue for days. The following day, a group of us surreptitiously returned to the scene where we inspected the pieces of the torn fuselage strewn across the field. On Saturday, a crew from the RAF base at Aldergrove, County Antrim, arrived with cranes, trailers and huge lorries to begin the arduous task of dismantling the plane. This included the removal of the two engines, which apparently had been undamaged in the crash landing. Early the following week, the locals gathered en masse, waving and cheering as the convoy left us with their precious cargo. And so... As we returned to school on September 1st, 1962, our step was a little lighter and the academic year ahead seemed a little less daunting. Colonel Francisco, Ecuador, Canberra Twin Engine, faulty Compass and Salvage were all words that featured prominently in our conversations that autumn. As this year marks the 60th anniversary of the crash landing, Our local Dunmore Festival Committee recently erected a plaque close to the site of this event, which, for one glorious week in August 1962, enhanced our school holidays and created special memories for those of us who were lucky enough to be there.
4: You always know where you stand with dogs. They bark, they wag their tails, they run around after bulls. They need you. They yearn and yap for you when you're not around. They walk ahead and look back to make sure you're following and haven't disappeared and left them alone in the world. If you're afraid of being alone, as I am, man's best friend is the kind of companion that will keep you feeling needed. Cats, on the other hand, make me nervous. They're enviously self-sufficient and purr a sense of mystery. The truth is I'm a bit codependent, so their independence scares me. I once had a cat, uh, sort of. In my 20s, I was living in a flat share in Waterloo Road in Dublin, and we were visited by a stray, extra furry, black cat. He was scruffy and frightened and needed a lot of coaxing. My flatmate earned his trust with saucers of milk and cat food until he came back on a regular basis and eventually felt safe enough to sleep over. He was chill. Actually, he was a butte. We stayed at that flat for one year of cocktail parties, dinner parties, late nights and early mornings as the Celtic tiger was finding its feet and we were finding ours. My flatmate was a TV producer and I was working for a newswire service. Our stray cat made three. My flatmate gave the cat the same name as my then-boyfriend, Fergus. His name created endless opportunities for confusion. Quentin, did you know Fergus didn't come home last night? Or Fergus was very standoffish and didn't eat his dinner. We decided the cat should keep his given name, and my then-boyfriend should be known as Le Chat. Twenty years later, he is still listed as Le Chat on my phone. Fergus, the cat, stopped coming over. We assumed he'd come a cropper somewhere in D4. He had the weight of the world on his shoulders. We moved after a year and never saw him again. He's long gone, but he represented a time in our lives. We were not long out of college and everything was ahead of us. We gave him love and shelter for that year, but he deserved so much more. So here we are two decades later. I live in New York, but offered myself up on Facebook for pet-sitting duties in return for a summer in Dublin while pandemic-era remote working lasts. The gigs came rolling in, and they were all cat-sitting. A less labour-intensive job than dog-sitting, sure, they don't need walks, but how would I do? It had been a long time since I'd bonded with Fergus the Cat. My first cat-sitting gig was minding a cat called Izzy in Dollymount for former colleagues. The first night, she scratched at my bedroom door. So I let her in and she snuggled up next to me. And for the next two nights. But when I told my vacationing friends of this endearing habit, that's not Izzy, they said, that's Luna, the neighbor's cat. Two interlopers sharing a bed. We deserved each other. So now I was in charge of Izzy, black and white cat who showed up every other day for food, and Luna, a brown cat, who had no problem making herself at home. A third mystery white cat sent out anxiety-filled meows across the garden to alert me to her pending arrival and to break out the whiskers. For a novice cat sitter, they were a triple challenge. Missy, a 20-year-old cat in Donnybrook, was my next cat-sitting gig. Her owner is a childhood friend I've seen only a handful of times since we grew up, and yet each time is just like yesterday. Missy is a sweetheart. If I meow loudly, she meows back. Meow, 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 meow. Back and forth we go. I admire Missy's communication skills and her no-nonsense approach to life. Missy has a black coat with a mahogany hue, which would cost a pretty penny at a salon. She's more of a homebody than Izzy, but she's not as needy as me Luna. Izzy's gate-crashing neighbour. I view her as a distant cousin of the ghostly Fergus. They all are. As with Fergus, there's an aged dignity to Missy. She's an elder, although being a cat she is never too old for treats. Izzy, Luna, the mystery neighbourhood cat who did battle with Luna for the cat food and treats in Dollymount, and Missy have gifted me with her summer in Dublin, and the nourishment of a magic fountain that only old friends can provide. Translations by Brian Freel at the Abbey, barbecues in the sun, pub grub by the canal, walks along Bull Island and dips in the 40-foot. they reminded me of my connections to Ireland and that friends from the past are just one plaintive and majestic meow away from the present.
5: As we made our way to Phyllis Thockeen, the cliff of the little post, we imagined Donal Musgrave fishing off the rocks, the waves surging in all along the coast, Minehead Lighthouse off in the distance. The place was alive with a sense of movement and celestial potential. It was as if he had come along too. We knew he would have loved the spectacle. Donal had spent his formative years in the 1950s growing up here. He knew all the families in the village of Balianangául, speaking Irish fluently with young and old alike. That deep sense of connection with the community never left him. When his career as a newspaper man began in the early 1960s in London's Fleet Street, the first idea he pitched was to write about the city's homeless, that oft-forgotten community. And with investigative instincts to the fore, he lived rough on the streets for over a week. The Catholic Herald led with the resulting story. He was to spend over 55 years working as a journalist. Donal had played football with the local team here too. Years later, one of his teammates recalled his role in a county championship match, paying tribute to him, comparing him to Zinedine Zidane. Vise anavarr agus chlíste, he said. Pelador alling ba a e, at Andonel er. And Donal was like that in life as well, very quick and very clever, and you'd love to be in his company. My sister and I had attended a lovely family ceremony in Donal's home place in Iniskara on the River Lee. With family and friends, we'd reminisced about our cousin. And then Donal's wife, Shirley, had invited us all to tip some of his ashes into a spot in their garden which she had readied for a tree to be planted, the Rimu tree of New Zealand, Dacridium cupressinum. It was a moving occasion and we all left with a great sense of him. But we, too, also left with a scoopful of his ashes. All had liked Roseanne's idea that we would sprinkle them in the place of his youth in honour of the strong links he had with Goilthag na in West County Waterford. And so at home, Roseanne created a number of papier-mâché balls to hold the ashes. As these took shape, we remembered the fun we used to have with Donal and Shirley in the kitchen, singing, telling stories, laughing late into the night at everything and anything. When we pasted the shredded lengths of wet newspaper together, the Irish Times, the Cork Examiner, we both knew that Donal, the consummate journalist, would have loved it. The day arrived and we stood on the cliff top and began each of us taking turns to throw the balls. The wind whipped the first one away. We watched it disappear into the abyss below. There was no sign of it in the surging foam. I took another, a little featherweight papier-mâché ball about the size of a slither. I threw it out again. It disappeared. As we cast them out over the cliff we remembered the kind-hearted relative who had stepped into the breach phoning and visiting us in loco parentis when we were left alone in the family home after our father had died now we shot prayers up into the sky for donal and for all of those who had passed away we communed with the spirits sensing that the heavens were very close in the crystal bright afternoon light We were down to three little balls there was no satisfying sense of seeing them bounce onto the water and we were a little disappointed that we could not see them head off on their journey out to sea then roseanne spotted something look she shouted pointing there's one of them sure enough one of the balls was bobbing along on the waves a good way out from the cliff "'Then I saw another one. "'Look there!' I cried in disbelief. "'And there's another!' she said. "'We watched four little balls bob along "'like a convoy of ships surging forward "'as if making towards Helvig Head. "'They were equidistant apart, "'like sea-going vessels on a mission out to sea. "'We threw the last few balls off "'and watched for them in the surf. "'We waved and cheered.' Light danced on the sparkling tide. The wind caused our eyes to water and we said our goodbyes to Donal. We watched the little spheres head windward in the swelling tide. They were headed for open water. Then the two of us turned and climbed up through a lime through the firs and home.
6: On this morning's programme we heard A Ming Bowl by Neil Hegarty The Price of Free Books by Joe Whelan The Hamilton Fish Pool by Yvonne Judge One Enchanted Evening by Pat Coleman The Cat Sitter by Quentin Fottrell and Heading Windward by Catherine Foley the music was Journey to Ireland, performed on the guitar by Pat Kirtley. Traditional Irish Hornpipe Suite by Adrian Cruft, performed by the Royal Ballet Sinfonia, conducted by Gavin Sutherland. Cruel Summer by Banana Rama. Mi Pueblo by Paloma del Sur. And "Per Dance by Alan Hoveness, performed on the piano by Marvin Rosen. This morning's edition of Sunday Miscellany was produced by Lorcan Clancy. The series producer is Sarah Binchy and the broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon. You can find highlights from Sunday Miscellany at rte.ie forward slash culture.
0: You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.